So we're continuing on in this series through Philippians, and did anybody, I don't know if any, how many people are watching the Olympics, paying attention to it? I'm kind of like in and out of it when I have time. Did anybody see uh, this girl that won the Super G? Did anybody hear this story? Uh, Esther Ledecka, I'm probably saying her name totally wrong, she's from the Czech Republic, there's no way that I'm saying it right. Uh, She... She's a snowboarder, and she should not be doing the Super G, and yet, here she is. She came in, like, 43rd into this, so her run was 26. Normally, they let the, the top people go in the top 20, so they get the good runs when the snow's good, and they learn from each other, and they get going faster and faster, and they, they rise to the challenge. Well, she went 26th, so late in the, you know, late in the runs, and she was on borrowed skis, like, they're not even her skis. And yet, she gets down to the bottom, and it says first place. And there were already people who were, you know, women who were supposed to have won, women who were supposed to have placed, and she couldn't believe it. She's looking at the score, I mean, the time, and, and she had won by one one-hundredth of a second. And so, snowboarder, borrowed skis, not even like her proper sport, and yet she wins. And I thought, man, that is such a fitting analogy for where we're going today. Uh, you know, throughout Scripture, we find a common theme of, of underdogs defeating giants and enemies, come for behind victories, men and women who were outclassed and outranked, standing victorious who simply didn't deserve to be there. Slaves subverting empires, outcasts and aliens winning the day over religious legalism. We see again and again that our God has a flair for the dramatic and always seems to have a trick up his sleeve. Yet in some ways, if this is his M.O., eventually it shouldn't come as a surprise to us as his followers, that he will get the victory one way or the other, that we can actually start to be confident in his ways and overcome our doubts with hope and faith that our God will come through for his children, for our good, and for his glory. Today we come to a passage in Philippians 1 that seems to echo that kind of confidence and that kind of faith in God's mysterious ways. It's a passage that reminds me of the ridiculousness of Noah building an ark when no one had ever seen rain. The brazenness of Moses demanding that Pharaoh let my people go. Of Esther enduring great personal suffering but seeing the hand of God move dramatically in her favor. Of Daniel throwing open the windows and praying for all to hear, and then surviving the lion's den. And ultimately, of our Lord, of Jesus, subverting the religious and political empires of the day, finally taking down the giants of sin and death, and sharing the spoils of the battle with his co-heirs, us. This is the gospel. This is our God. And similar to what we find in stories of Jesus' early followers, uh, today in Philippians 1, we find the Apostle Paul, the unlikeliest of converts to Christianity, living in house arrest, right under the thumb of the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, speaking unashamedly counter to the religious legalism of his heritage, and confidently facing trial and possibly death, proclaiming, rejoice, this is good. This is a good thing. This is, this is happening. Good things are happening in Rome. This is actually beneficial, he says. How does he face opposition and trial with this attitude? How does he have such faith and confidence? 
By all accounts, it runs counter to what logic would say, right? It looks like losing by the empire standards, and it appears that the religious legalists are going to have a victory over him because they got him there in the first place, and yet here he is saying rejoice. Good things are happening. I don't know about you, but I would love to have that kind of confidence. I would love to have that kind of faith that in the, in the midst of trial, in the midst of opposition, that I would feel confident that God is up to something good, that I would have faith, that I would have hope. I would love to have that perspective that even in the face of pain, I could see God's hand at work and trust that he was doing something. Wouldn't you? I mean, don't you want to live a life like that? To where when you come up against opposition, come into persecution, come into trials, that you have confidence in who God is and that he's going to do what he said he would. So that's what we're in search of today. We're in search of why did Paul feel this way? And why can we feel that way as well? Would you pray with me? Father, right now, would you speak to us through your word? Would you speak to us through the characters we're going to look at in Scripture? Would you speak to us by your Spirit? And right now, at the start of this, we proclaim freedom in the gospel, that this is not something we have to do, this is something we get to do. You love us no matter what. But you do challenge us to a deeper life, and you invite us into a full life. Would you speak to us now and help us take steps into the deeper life of relationship with you that leads us on on mission for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember last week, right, Paul is writing to the Philippian church. It was a church that he had a great affection for. They were his friends, and, and he was their pastor. And, you know, if you look at other letters that Paul writes, he starts them by saying, I, Paul, an apostle. And he starts to make an argument. He claims his apostleship to say, here's why you should listen to me. He doesn't do that in this case. He writes them this loving letter of friendship, trying to encourage them about what they're going through and encourage them about what he's going through and that they don't need to worry about him. And we know that he's been facing years of of persecution. If you read the book of Acts, you see that he was moved from one prison to another. He had to appear before this king, before this guy, before this guy. Now he's going to appear before Caesar. So he's under this house arrest situation where he has freedom to to probably read, freedom to write. Maybe people have freedom to come and go in his presence. But he's there in Rome, under their thumb, under house arrest. And he's writing to the people in Philippi where he started a church that that he loves and he has a great affection for. Remember last week, Pastor Adam talked about how this was the church where Lydia was. We see her in the book of Acts. She was a merchant and she was a seller of of purple goods, it says. And, And Paul goes and she becomes a Christ follower And then she gets this radical generosity that comes out of her and this radical hospitality, and her home becomes an outpost for the gospel, probably the seed for the church that grows in Philippi. And Paul's writing this letter to encourage them and to thank them for caring for him, but also to encourage them to to not lose heart. You see, it's easy for us maybe to look at Paul and say, well, that's his situation, that's why he can be encouraged. But he's writing to the Philippians saying, you're going through the same kind of struggles as me. Be encouraged. And he even says, model yourselves after me. So we're not off the hook here. This is not just some high challenge that Paul gives for himself. It's for us. It's for the Philippian church, and it's for us today. So I want you to look with me. If you have uh, your Bible, you have a copy of the Scriptures here, turn to Philippians 1. 
uh, verse 12. We're going to start there and read through verse 26. This is what Paul says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, meaning they're on the team with me. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, uh, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the, uh, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. There's three kind of main sections here that I need to break down and make sure we talk about before we kind of get into the meat of the talk. The first thing we need to see here is that, is that though it looks bad or to be an unfortunate situation, it's actually turning out for good, Paul says. Because some of the soldiers are starting to believe in the gospel. They're starting to see Paul's example and believe in this Christ that he's come to represent. So even in Rome, in the most powerful empire ever, Paul's in chains. Soldiers are starting to come to Christ. So the army itself is starting to turn to Jesus because of Paul's example. And not only that, the church in Rome, the other believers who were there, are being encouraged by what Paul's doing, so they're going out and being better outposts for the gospel. They're seeing that he's an example, and they're saying, okay, we're going to go do this too. And they're sharing the gospel with the world around them. So Paul looks at this, and he's like, that's great. This is a win. Yes, I'm in under house arrest, and I don't really like that, but this is great that the gospel's advancing. So that's this first section. The second section is, is that uh, he says this sort of, parenthetical statement about how there's these, these people who are taking advantage of the situation. Did he catch that? He says, there's some people who are preaching the gospel for good, and I rejoice in that. And he says, there's some people who are taking advantage of this situation while I'm in prison to seek their own glory. Basically, I, the, best, the best way I can imagine this is that They were taking advantage of the fact that while Paul couldn't be a leader in Rome, they were happy to step in and fill that. They were happy to take advantage of this situation to be leaders in his absence. There were some wandering sheep that they were like, sure, come come be with me, I'll teach you. Now, Paul still rejoices in this because he says, well, at least they're preaching the gospel. They're not preaching legalism necessarily, not preaching the empire's power, They're, they're preaching Jesus. So again, I rejoice. 
he somehow still finds the, the, the strength and the fortitude and faith in God to see that even though these people are out really to harm him and are envious of him, he says, okay, well, they're preaching the gospel at least. Praise God. That's good. And just has this, this faith about him that he sees that God is still up to the advancement of the gospel. We could go down a whole rabbit trail about these envious pastors. We won't. We don't have time, but I encourage you to study it if you want to. So finally, in this third section here, we find one of the most lofty verses in all of Scripture, in my opinion, and one that if you grew up in the church, like you have this memorized, you've seen it on posters, you like try to encourage people when they're going on missions trips, you know, like, hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain, you know, and you're like, okay, great, you know. But we look at this verse and we're like, yeah, okay, that, that's a great verse, man. I, I should totally feel like that, right? And really what it is, though, is that it's, it's summing up Paul's life. He sees his life as part of God's purpose on earth to make Jesus known and gather children to the Father. In short, Paul's saying, it's all about Jesus. My chains, my imprisonment, the beatings. I mean, think about all the things that Paul had been through at this point. The shipwrecks, the torture, the imprisonment in multiple places, getting stoned, getting thrown out of towns, the churches I've planted, the the crazy reputation I have, the threats, the victories, the losses, the friendships, the tent making, all of it is for Jesus. It's all about him. No matter what happens, it's about him. Come hell or high water, good or bad, it's great because the gospel is advancing. And he is encouraged by what is happening in Rome. Oh, and dying. He also sees this as celebratory. Why? Because he continues his relationship with Jesus. So his life that is all about making Jesus known reaches its culmination in death when he sees Jesus face to face. So for him, either way, it doesn't matter to him what happens but we see that he relents on his desire to depart and be with the Lord and says, it's better that I'm here actually for you right now. Do you have days like that where you're like, man, I would just rather be with Jesus, right? I mean, like, let's be honest. There's days where we're like, it would be better. We we should all, it it would be better if we were the Jesus, right? But we have a purpose here that God gives us that he leaves us on earth to do and be on mission for him, which is what we're going to get into today. So we come to this verse And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I have a feeling if you're like me, we hear that and we think, well, that's Paul. That's Paul's call, not mine. Paul's an apostle. He can feel that way, but not me. That's not for me. Or we think that's Paul. He's clearly crazy. Or he's lying. He's being overly dramatic. I mean, think about it. He's saying, well, being in prison, good. Dying, also good. We're like, yeah, you don't really think that, if we're honest. Or we come to this verse and we say, I should feel this way, but I don't. And we beat ourselves up saying, I'll never get there. Or I'm just going to try real hard to get there. But I think what Paul is writing to this, this letter to the Philippians, living under the same... Roman empires him, the threat of Jewish religious legalism. He's encouraging them to feel the same way, to see their lives as part of the grand and glorious narrative, the gospel narrative that God has been writing for all these years. And I think in the same way that he calls the Philippians to it, a church who are living under an empire, he calls us today 
a church living among the empire of the most powerful country in the world, he calls us to this same thing. And it's not a, a brow-beating, finger-wagging, you know, uh, declaration talking to. It's, it's an encouragement. Paul is saying, hey, you're living in the empire of America with the threat of Christian legalism all around. Join me in living confidently in the gospel, making the most of every opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus and to join this ragtag team of of underdogs and losers who are subverting the empire and will one day stand victoriously with Jesus in heaven. Friends, Paul didn't arrive at this overnight. I think sometimes we think like, well, superstar, he was there, he had this feeling. I don't think he did. Now, I'll give you that his conversion to Christianity, to crawling Christ the Messiah, was, was an almost instantaneous thing that happened on the Damascus Road. I'm, I'm not saying that wasn't. But if you look at Paul's life, you'll see that for years and years he had been studying the Scriptures. For years and years he'd been laying a foundation in his life to see that God loves his people. And he always comes through for them. He loves his children And he has a plan for them that he's working out. And sometimes it's mysterious. Sometimes it's crazy. Sometimes we die without seeing the end result. But we know that God is good and he's in it. So Paul has been building this mentality in himself. And God's been building it in Paul until he flips the switch on. It says, Paul, this isn't about you achieving this. This is about me achieving this through Jesus. So then when he comes to this place of saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It was a building process that happened. Can you understand this? Paul's not just some superhero that he just landed here magically one day. It took time for him to develop this, and God developed it in him over a course of years. Where we used to live in South Jersey, uh, it was actually quite beautiful. New Jersey Jersey has kind of a bad reputation up here, but where we lived in New Jersey, it was beautiful. And it is the garden state for a reason, okay? There's like one part of New Jersey that's terrible and hideous, and the rest is awesome, all right? where we lived was kind of flat, but it was surrounded by farmland and pine trees. And we lived uh, among the Pine Barrens, which is one of the largest pine forests in the country and beautiful area. Well, every once in a while, when I'd be overwhelmed with ministry or in life or whatever, I would go out to the Pine Barrens just to get some perspective, just to remember that I'm not God. And there was this place out there called Apple Pie Hill. Now, Apple Pie Hill is... One of the tallest mountains in South Jersey at 205 feet above sea level, okay? Now, in the forest, in these these pine barrens, the forest department set up all these fire towers to look out for wildfires. And guys would man these fire towers. So on top of Apple Pie Hill at 205 feet was another 60-foot tower that you were free to climb. And you could go up and, and see things. And my friends and I would go there regularly, or like I said, when I needed time to pray or just to get some perspective, I would go and I would climb this fire tower. One of my favorite memories was one day, you could never get inside, but one day there was this old raggedy forest ranger in there, and he was like, come on up. And I'm like, okay, here we are. And when you would get up there, to the east, you could see the skyline of Atlantic City. All the way, and it looked like, really what it looked like was woods, casinos. Like, like, it was that flat, and then casinos. And if you look to the west, you could see the skyline of Philadelphia. On a clear day, you could see Philly this direction, 
and Atlantic City this direction. It was unbelievable. And like I said, I would go there just to get perspective, just to remember that I'm not God. I don't need to control anything. I didn't make any of this. God made it all. He is in charge. But however, to get to that point, right, to get to the top of this tower, it took driving a half an hour out into the woods on pavement. It took another 15 minutes of driving on these sandy roads back through there. It took walking up to the tower. It took taking the first couple steps, which is like fine when you're cruising up the steps. And then you start to get above the tree line, and it starts getting windy. And like the wind was constantly moving up there, and you could feel the thing move a little bit. And there were no walls to it. Like You're just on rails, that's it. It was a little bit scary. I had to get past my fear of heights. But there were steps that needed to be taken to get to that place, to have perspective and to see what was happening. This is the same thing in our spiritual journey. So what we're talking about today, to live as Christ, to die as gain, it's a journey to get to that point. So today I want to talk about just a few things, few, the beginning steps, okay, of, to starting to climb that to have perspective. And this is as close as a how-to sermon uh, you'll probably get here, um, probably ever get here. So take this through the lens of the gospel, church, okay? We are, we are challenged to something, and there are steps that we need to take. But like I said earlier, this is not something we have to do. This is something we get to do because the gospel is at work in us. The first thing I see in this letter that Paul is writing to the Philippians about you know, climbing and moving in this direction, having this worldview, is that he has linked his purpose in life with the purpose of God. He's linked his purpose in life with the purposes of God. And this seems simple enough to say, Right? Oh yeah, I want my purpose to line up with God's. That's what I'm going to do. But it's actually pretty difficult to do consistently. Our natural inclination is to seek our own purposes of gaining significance, making a name for ourselves, providing for ourselves, protecting our own interests and so forth, right? We live in an empire of capitalism and patriotism that is doing everything it can to convince us that that their purpose is what's most important and should be ours. It says your purpose is your production value, your significance, what you bring to the table. And it appeals to our natural selfish tendencies. And we can spot this if we look for it pretty easily, but that in and of itself is a choice we get to make to see that we live in that kind of world. Maybe less obvious is the other world that surrounds us, that of religious legalism. We're surrounded by it, friends. It's in our friends, it's in our churches, it's in our books, radio programs, and podcasts that tell us, your purpose is doing more for Jesus. You need to do more for him, you need to do more, you need to be better behaved. <laughs> you need to give to this or that, wear these types of clothes, don't wear this type of makeup, raise your kids like this, watch this movie, but don't watch that one, read this book, but not that author, no way, never read him, never read her, don't listen to that speaker, all these things. You find your purpose by behaving well. It appeals to an inner desire that we have to get back into relationship with the Father. But it's a twist on the gospel. It's not the freedom that Jesus offers us. Our true purpose is found in loving the Son, in loving Jesus, trusting his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection, and then living the full life of gospel-motivated obedience. Of realizing that we've been saved from all of that other garbage 
and choosing to live a life away from it, a life that we get to live in the kingdom, that we get to live more life, to live pure lives of freedom. That is the full life that Jesus offered us. Not legalism, not the empire. That is the gospel. But like Paul, we have to be on alert for this. You see this in all of Paul's letters. He's constantly on alert for where religious legalism is making an advance, and he rails against it. And he's living under the thumb of the empire, advancing the, co- the, the kingdom of Jesus instead of the empire. So that's one of the things I see here in this first step in, in kind of climbing this, this tower to have this perspective is that we need to link our purpose with the purpose of the gospel, with the purpose of God, which is to know his son and to make him known. To be a gospel outpost like Lydia living lives that respond to the gospel in our own life by sharing it with others through words, through deeds, through our generosity, through our hospitality, through, our, through the things that we say and the friendships that we're in, even through our struggles and trials. So when you think of your life, do you, think, do you see yourself linking your purpose in life with the purposes of God? Do you see yourself having confidence and faith in God, in the midst of trial, to know that you're on the right path because you're trying to be a gospel outpost. You're trying to make Jesus known. Now, I know none of you are in prison. You wouldn't be sitting here, right, if you were. And if somebody listens to this on a podcast someday and you're in prison, then it's right for you, like right now. But the rest of us are not in prison, right? But Maybe you're in a job that you hate, that feels like prison. Maybe you're in a relationship that feels like prison. Maybe you've got brokenness in your life that you can't get away from, addiction that you're stuck in. Maybe you're two years into a degree, and you've got years left, and you're like, oh my God, it's never going to finish. It's going to take forever to get there. It feels like a prison. God calls us in the midst of that, like he called Paul, and he says, you have a purpose within that trial, within that prison. When I worked, I worked for a couple years at a faucet company, and I'm, I feel like I've told some of this story before, but I, I, I worked at this faucet company, and it was a really like, high-end faucet company, so it wasn't like I had to deal with like, you know, regular people like me. I had to deal with like, really rich, wealthy people who would call and complain about their faucets, and tell me why their $1,000 faucet was broken and I was a you know, jerk that needed to return it. No, anyway. It was miserable. I hated it. I hated it. I hated going there. I started to hate the people I worked with. I hated the people that called on the phone. It was just miserable. Until God really convicted me that my purpose in the midst of that prison <laughs> was to proclaim Christ. And I started to line my purpose up with God's and say, okay, yeah, you're going in this direction. You're trying to build your kingdom here in the midst of this place. And you've got me here as the gospel outpost. Let me find my full life in that. So do you see that this is what Paul is doing? He's saying, yeah, I might be in prison, but God has put me here for a reason. I'm going through this trial, through this struggle. I'm working at this place. I'm married to this person. These are my kids. These are my crazy family members. This is the stuff I've been through. These are my experiences for a reason. To make Jesus known. 
And he makes himself known to you, and you get to make him known to the world around you. You are where you are for a reason, because God has placed you there. And I know Adam talks about it all the time, and I love it. You are the exact person that God wanted there right now for this reason, to be a gospel outpost for him. Now, that's not to say that it's not miserable. That's not to make little of it, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but there is purpose in where you're at. So we start to climb this tower to have perspective like Paul by, by lining our purposes up with God's. But he doesn't leave us to do it on our own. He gives us the power to do it, which we talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? We've been formed and we've been empowered. Well, I want you to look uh, at another passage of Scripture, if you want, in the book of Acts. So if you want to turn to Acts 4, you can do so. I would encourage you to, to this week, read Acts 3 and 4 and look at what happens there. In Acts 3 and 4, what we see is Jesus has, uh, the, the Spirit has been given to the disciples, and the disciples Peter and John are walking around outside of the temple, and they find this crippled man there who's begging. He's begging for money. And Peter says to him, look, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. And the Jewish legal system sees this and they see that the, the, the disciples are proclaiming the resurrection and they're doing miracles and some other kind of power and they, they put Peter and John in prison. And then they call him before the Sanhedrin, this great jury of leaders of the, the Jewish system, and they say, by whose name are you doing this? Where, where are you getting this power to do this? Because they'd seen that they were unschooled, unkempt fishermen. And they say, Jesus. Jesus has given us the ability to do this. And our purpose is to make him known. And Peter gives this great sort of condemning uh, answer to them and to the people who are listening on. So then they released from prison because the leaders don't know what to do because all these crowds are rejoicing in it. So they release Peter and John. They go back to the church that's gathered there. The disciples are there. And listen to what happens in Acts 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, and then they quote this psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. I mean, that that alone right there is a statement. God ordained this. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Do you see what happens to the disciples in the midst of their opposition? They come back. I imagine there's a slight time of panic where they're like, what are we going to do? We're this little sect with inside of Judaism. The chief priests are out to get us. What are we going to do? And they start calling upon the God of their ancestors. 
And they say, God, we have seen you do this time and time again. You're the God of Moses. You're the God of Jacob. You're the God of Joseph. You're the God of David. You're our God to look upon these threats. Save us. But notice, they don't say, woe is me. They don't say, oh God, just get me out of this. What do they do? They beg for God to work powerfully among them, and they beg for God to give them the ability to speak boldly the name of Jesus. Do you see? Their purpose lines up with God's. And they say, we want to make Jesus known. Give us the power to go and do this. And what happens after their little prayer meeting? The Spirit descends and gives them power and shakes the whole place. And they go out and they speak the word boldly. And we see that thousands of more people come to Jesus. Can you imagine if we lived our lives like that? Instead of every time we came to a problem, we were saying, God, get me out of this. God, get me out of this job. Get me out of this marriage. Get me out of this college. Whatever. Instead of saying, get me out of this, we said, give me the power to get through this. Give me the power to make you known to the world around me. How different would our faith be? How different would the church look? How different would our world look if we lived like that? And I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that as much as I say that to myself. Because frequently when I encounter hardship, I'm like, oh God, take this away. I don't want to do it. Right? Yet here we have our spiritual forefathers saying, when faced with opposition, it's a great time for the gospel to go forth. God, give us power to do it. So they're lining up their purposes with God's, and they're saying, don't leave us here alone to do it. Give us power to do it. And I think Paul would say the same thing again and again, that it isn't something that he wills with inside of himself to say, I'm Paul, I've got these great gifts. He says, it's God's spirit working in me to do this. That's the gospel. That God gives us this life that we can live, and then he gives us the power to do it. That's what it means to be on mission for him. Can you imagine what that power would look like in your life if you would take that step to say, okay, God, I'm in it. You've put me here. Give me the power to get through it. Help me speak the gospel boldly. Speak it to me. Confirm it to me, Lord. And help me speak it to the world around me. So now we've started to climb this tower, right? We've, we've laid the foundation of, all right, it's the gospel. I don't have to do this. I get to. This is the full life that Jesus offered me. I'm going to live on purpose. I'm going to line up my purpose with God's, not the empire's, not religious legalism. I'm going to line up with the purpose of advancing the gospel. And I'm going to see that whatever situation I'm in, God's put me there, and I'm going to be a gospel outpost. And we're going to see that God's given me the power to do this and to carry this out through the power of his Holy Spirit. So we start to climb this, and then I think we start to gain perspective. I think we start to see and trust that God is who he says he is. I won't make a turn there, but there's a story through the the last several chapters of the book of Genesis about Joseph. And if you remember, Joseph was was a younger brother who had these extravagant dreams of how he was going to possibly be a a king over his brothers. So he has this vision, maybe, but he also is kind of pompous about it. And his brothers are like, you know what, we've had enough of this. And they sell him into slavery, tell his father that he's dead, and he gets carted off to Egypt. And then he's in Egypt, and he gets brought into this man Potiphar's house. And Potiphar is kind of the lord of his house, and he sees that Joseph's a good man. He starts giving Joseph authority over the house, and eventually Joseph's moving up in rank. And eventually, Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and says, oh, he's kind of hot. I think I'd kind of like to hang out with him a little bit. And Joseph says, no way, not doing it. And he runs out of the house, remember? So then she accuses him of assault, and where does he end up? Prison. So he's done nothing wrong, right, as far as we can tell. 
He's done nothing wrong in this situation. He ends up in prison. And then when he's there, what happens? He starts interpreting dreams because he's had this ability that God has given him, this God-given power. There's two men there who have these dreams, and they say, what are we going to do, Joseph? What do they mean? And he interprets them through the power of God, and he says, well, this means you're going to be lifted up. This means you're going to die. Sorry. And that's what happens. These two things come to fruition. We see the power of God enacted in his life and in these men's lives. So more time goes by as he's wallowing in prison. Pharaoh eventually has a dream and says, can anybody interpret this dream? And no one can. And they say, well, you know, we've heard about this guy, Joseph. So they go and they get him out of prison and he comes and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. The dream comes to fruition. There's a famine. Joseph gets put in charge and he ends up leading like all of Egypt. He ends up preserving the people of Israel as they come to Egypt for food. And through Joseph, trusting in God's purposes, using the power that God had given him to be living on purpose for God, the family line that leads to the Messiah is preserved thousands of years later. But what I find fascinating is at the end of Joseph's life, do you remember what he said? He said, what man intended for harm, God intended for good. He had perspective. He was able to see over the course of a lifetime, not through one little trial, over the course of a lifetime of trials and hardships, he was able to see that God was weaving this thing together for good. Now, friends, I'm not here to say that, yep, you're going through this hard time, so... It's going to be good, just enjoy it. Like it, 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 It's not that simple. However, when you stay after living on purpose, the purpose that God has given us of making the gospel known, when you stay after living in the power of the Spirit, you start to gain perspective to see that God is weaving these different threads together of all of our lives to make this fabric that shows the gospel to us and to the world. But it takes time. And I think Paul, writing from this Philippian prison, had started to see some of this. He'd started to see how all of history had culminated in Jesus. And now his own trials were contributing to making Jesus known. And he was able to say, if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's Christ. What does it matter? It's all good because he's being made known. Church, it's a journey. We don't just end up at to live as Christ, to die as gain. We don't just get right there because we want to. It takes time of building into this and developing that kind of worldview and perspective by trusting that our life is on purpose and lining up with God's purpose, by trusting the power of the Spirit and by slowly gaining perspective to see what God is doing. I think our church, our world, our community, the Lehigh Valley would look so amazingly different if we lived like that. And our own lives and our families and our marriages and our kids and our relationships would look so different if we lived like that, on purpose, in God's power, and having his perspective. So would you take the next step maybe this week? Would you take one step? I don't know what it looks like for you. If you're in the middle of a trial, would you take a step to see that maybe there's a gospel perspective here that I don't have? Maybe the gospel's advancing here and I'm not realizing it. How can I take part in that? Would you take a moment to pray this week and say, God, give me the power to get through this, not just to get out of it. Give me the power to get through this and to make the gospel known. Make it known to me, Lord, so that I can make it known to others. Or maybe you need to take time to look at your life and say, man, what has God been doing? 
Why has he put me here? What has he been doing up to this point? And have perspective that God is at work in your lives. Would you pray with me?